Hey, Pioneers, welcome to episode number 334. Today's episode, we are going to be diving into gluten-free baking. Now, hold up, even if you are not someone who needs to be gluten-free, the reality is most of us probably have friends or family members where they are gluten-free, and so we like to would like to be able to bake them foods if it's not for us and our family, immediate family, like in your household, then we have some tools to produce some great gluten-free items for them. So in today's episode, I actually have brought in a guest. I have done some gluten-free baking in the past when I was taking a break from wheat and doing some gut healing. And then when we have done keto in the past, which you guys, if you're a longtime listener of the podcast, then you have heard some of those episodes where I've talked about that. But the very interesting part of today's episode is I had had Robin scheduled on because I actually myself, because I haven't been a dedicated gluten-free baker for an extended period of time, I actually had some questions that I wanted to ask about some of the different gluten-free baking and flour options and binders and adjusting recipes, which we do cover all of that in today's episode, that I wanted to glean from her, someone who has been doing the gluten-free, dedicated gluten-free baking without gluten-free blends. Now, there's nothing wrong with using a gluten-free blend. However, I really wanted to dive in and dissect the gluten-free baking with an understanding of specific starches and flours and how to use those and what they offer to a recipe, just like I do when I am looking at what consists of a pastry flour. What are we looking for in flours when we are doing, and I'm talking regular non-gluten-free baking, when we are looking at the difference between bread flour and hard wheat and soft wheat, ancient grain spelt and einkorn, like the different properties and how you use them based upon the end baked product. And we actually briefly mentioned that even though this they are not gluten-free in this episode. So all of the links and the resources, if you want to look at some of those other things, will be in today's blog post that accompanies this episode. And you can find that at melissaknorris.com forward slash 334, because this is episode number 334. So it's just the number 334, melissaknorris.com forward slash 334. So What was interesting is I had had Robin scheduled to do this interview for, honestly, I think a couple of months. And I just recently got back. If you're a Pioneering Today Academy member, then you heard me discuss this on our Q&A and some of our live meetings that we do inside for members every month. But I recently had some testing done um, for a a complete hormone panel. I'm 41. (laughs) A complete hormone panel because I've had some things that have just not been quite right. And that included gut microbiome testing as well as some blood tests to look at any food antibodies that may be impacting inflammation. And then therefore that impacts some of your different hormone structures and, and how things are playing out. So the reason that I share that with you is because I literally had just gotten back my test results. And there were 34 foods that I had antigens to. So I am entering into, which I'll talk more about it as I go into it. I am so brand new and have just started that I don't want to go fully into that into this episode, but just giving you a little bit of preface um, and where I'm at right now. So 
interestingly enough, uh, wheat and bakers and brewers yeast, including almond, cashew, and oat, along with rye, are all items that right now I should not be consuming because they are causing inflammation markers for me specifically. So I am going to be abstaining for them for three to six months, allowing my body to have a chance to heal, um, get all the inflammation down, and then we'll reintroduce those and see how, how it goes. Now, this is all with a licensed holistic health practitioner, etc. And it was very fascinating and eye-opening thus far. So I do need to be gluten-free baking, and I wanted to be able to add more than my existing repertoire of gluten-free recipes and also get a deeper understanding for formulating some of our family favorites so that I'm not doing double baking. So any of you who have ever been on any type of program where you had to cut foods out that were a normal part of it, you know that nobody wants to bake two separate meals. On the same hand, I have a health reason, which is great motivation, but unless the food tastes just as good as our current version, so like my non-gluten-free versions, my family's not really going to be on board, bless their hearts. And I understand that because they don't have the motivation for health. And yes, of course, they want you know their mom's health, spouse's health, et cetera, to be good. But it's a little bit different when you have a health reason and the rest in, the, in your family don't. But I got to tell you, I don't really want to be baking two versions of biscuits if we decide to have biscuits, that type of a thing. So I wanted to preface that because you'll hear in the interview with Robin, I had shared that with her just briefly before we started recording that I was really excited for our chance to talk because I just received this diagnosis. So we also talk about in the interview her health journey and how she actually discovered that she was celiac and the impact that that's had and what that means, which is fascinating from just a health standpoint. So without further ado, we are going to jump straight into this episode, but we've got some really exciting things at the end. So you're going to want to make sure that you stay tuned all the way through till the end. So Robin is a baker, performer, and digital content creator based in Toronto, Canada. She was born and raised in Nova Scotia, and she comes from several generations of award-winning bakers. And we're talking with not gluten-free baking, right? In 2016, she was devastated to receive a celiac disease diagnosis, making it impossible to enjoy all of her family's prized recipes. This had her set out on a mission to recreate all of the recipes gluten-free without compromising on taste or quality. And if you've done gluten-free baking before, you know that that can be a little bit of a rough learning curve. By 2020, she had launched Robin's Gluten-Free Baking Courses, offering online courses to teach people how to bake gluten-free. And in addition to baking, she has worked as a professional actor and musical theater performer for over six years. She puts those performance skills to good use on her YouTube channel where she offers gluten-free living, of course, fun, informational, and relatable videos about celiac disease and living gluten-free. So without further ado, let us get to the episode. Well, I am super excited for today's guest because this is something that I have had a little bit of experience with in the past at different times in my life, but I've never done this on a dedicated level and as I was sharing with her before we started recording and shared in the intro with you guys, it is a new venture that I am going down again, at least for the, the next six months. So I feel like 
the Lord always knows the timing. And we had this episode scheduled long before I had actually gotten my lab work back. So Robin, welcome to the Pioneering Today podcast. Hi, Melissa. Thank you so much for having me. I'm sorry that you have had to learn these skills on one hand, but I am very grateful that you have learned these skill sets and that you can share them with the rest of us. So for those who might not be familiar with you, can you give us a little bit of background on how you were diagnosed with celiac disease and then what that has looked like from the diagnosis to where you are now? Definitely. Yeah. So I was diagnosed with celiac disease in 2016. Uh, I think when I was 22 um, and I, you know, it's funny because I was always one of those people that was not into the whole gluten-free thing. Like I saw it as this fad and I didn't, I just didn't want to be associated with anything gluten-free. And I like prided myself in being a gluten lover. Like I come from a family of, of bakers, like specifically pastry and um, you know, I love beer and pasta and all of these things. So uh, I've always sort of had you know, some, some stomach issues, nothing, nothing like crazy. Um, but I've had low iron since I was 14 and I spent, you know, like probably 10 years, I would take supplements off and on and it didn't really do anything. I've been to many, many routine iron checkups and all of that. And it's kind of funny because no doctors really questioned it. They just told me to keep taking my iron pills. And, uh, that was that. So when I was 22, I went to a walk-in doctor randomly for my routine iron checkup just to see how it was doing. And the doctor said, um, you know, have you ever been tested for celiac disease? Like, do, do you know why your iron is so low? So, uh, so I said, sure. Yeah, let's, let's test me. And, uh, and I was positive. So yeah, I got my diagnosis two weeks later, I got my endoscopy, which is actually amazing to get in that quickly. Uh, and it was confirmed. So I have celiac disease <laughs> and uh, because I'm such a big foodie, that transition was like pretty devastating for me to go from eating these amazing foods to struggling to find really good options. Um, and because I'm a baker, I've tried so many different kinds of recipes, both from blogs and cookbooks and all of that. And uh, I, I came to the point where I started making my own recipes and that's sort of in a nutshell, how I came to developing my courses. I had some friends who were telling me like, you should sell your baked goods, your gluten-free baked goods, they're really good. And I just figured that I can reach a much bigger audience online and share my baked goods with so many more people by sharing the recipes online, so. Yeah, yeah. so I have, I have a lot of questions, but let's, let's <laughs> first, first off, one is, because I'm kind of in this phase, like I knew things that, I knew things were off, which is why I sought out testing within my own body. Like, uh, you know, I think especially if you've gone through anything like we know in our I'd say in our gut, but I think we know intuitively when things aren't really as they should be. But oftentimes we ignore them until they get super bad or we're actually faced with them like you were actually faced with, hey, you actually are celiac. And that means now that you know that for a fact that you need to deal with it. So yeah. I'm curious because you were functioning, you know, like you said, there was maybe some things, but it was not like where life was quality of life was so bad. You were like, my gosh, there has to be something here. You know, it was more of that. And, and I think that there's a lot more of us walking around where we are functioning and we kind of know, like, maybe we don't feel as good as we should, but we feel like, well, I'm pretty normal. 
and don't really go further down the path with that. So the reason that I'm asking all this is because when you actually cut out all of the gluten, did you really notice a difference in in your body and how you felt? Yes. Short answer, yes. Long answer is it took time. So when I got diagnosed, the funny thing is that I, I got the phone call that I was celiac and I was like, oh my gosh, all I've eaten today is toast. <laughs> and <laughs> that toast was the last gluten that I ever ate on purpose. And that's a whole other thing. But typically when you have something like celiac disease that does kind of destroy your gut, it takes a while for your gut to repair. So you can still keep having celiac symptoms for several weeks, maybe even several months, maybe even up to a year while your gut is healing until you feel totally better. So I think probably for about a month after my diagnosis, I didn't really notice that much of a change. Mm -hmm. Um, And it wasn't until probably about a year when I felt that like everything going on in my gut was a bit more normal. And I think the two that that's, I think I had tried eliminating gluten sort of earlier on for maybe a week or two at a time. And I didn't see a big difference. So I was like, well, it can't be gluten can't be the problem. But first of all, I wasn't strict about it. Like I was eating regular non-gluten-free oats and that sort of thing. And also I didn't give it long enough to heal and see if that was the case. And just to jump off of that too, it is also important to get tested for celiac disease, whether or not you think you have it or not, just to um, rule it out because there are about 80% of people who have it that are undiagnosed right now. Um, and symptoms can be you know, very obvious or not obvious at all. My whole family actually got tested after I did. And it turned out that my dad had it, but he had silent celiac. So he had no symptoms, but he also has other um, autoimmune diseases, which could, could have been from undiagnosed celiac. It's mm-hmm. hard to know. So, yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, I have read. So I'm going to sound very unscientific because I read it a while ago and my brain will hold on to what it feels like is very pertinent parts (laughs) and then it drops the rest. I'm sure y'all can relate. But I read somewhere that, like you were saying, that your body, especially if you do actually have antibodies or you are celiac or even gluten sensitive because of leaky gut or different inflammation issues that are going on within the body right now, that it takes at least six weeks of not having any gluten. Like you said, even the sneaky gluten that we're not, we don't realize that we're consuming just because of the way uh, food is produced and, and that type of thing. Sometimes we don't realize an ingredient's in there or if it's processed cross-contamination, it might not be on the ingredient label, but you know, all of those different mm-hmm. things, but that it takes about six weeks for your body to not be exposed to any gluten to actually stop producing a certain, I'm going to call it compound because I don't remember the exact name of it, but that's the reason that then when someone has truly been off of gluten that does have issues and has been off of it for like, you know, six to eight weeks, if they do introduce it back in, then their reaction to it, the negative reaction is like tenfold because their body had actually stopped producing like this protective mechanism because it wasn't being introduced, it wasn't getting the stuff it needed to protect you from. So it could actually go into healing mode, but because then you don't have any of those compounds in your body because it didn't, it's like, oh, it hasn't been giving, I don't have to be in protective mode. Like your reaction, if you accidentally come into it later is much, much more severe. 
Did have you yes. experienced that at all? Like, because I know you said accidentally had gluten since then. One hundred percent. Yeah, and I think that's why a lot of people get confused and they think like, oh, I I can't have celiac because I eat burgers and fries all the time, and I you know I don't get severely ill. Um, and that was me. But yeah, I think it's happened three times that I've eaten like a full thing by accident, like a whole burger bun or like a whole tea sandwich that was just the regular thing. And I get, yes, I get very sick now. And, and when it comes to cross contact too, I do feel that as well, but the reaction is different, but uh-huh. in both cases, it is definitely a stronger and more severe reaction than when I was eating it all the time. Yeah. V- interesting. So yeah, I, I'd heard, I've heard that I haven't tested within my own body probably long enough because when I've done like keto, I haven't had, you know, wheat products, but I haven't made sure everything is completely gluten-free because I was focusing more on the carb count. I wasn't focusing so much on specific ingredients other than avoiding, you know, all wheat type flours because they are high in carbs. So as I Definitely, go down yeah. my own journey, it's going to be really interesting to, to see the differences in this. But I'm just like, a, I'm a data geek. Like I really, I really love like <laughs> learning about things. And so thank you so much for sharing um, this with us. But the gluten-free part. So I have a lot of people who I think don't have a fundamental understanding of what the different flour types do, even at talking about like regular, like hard wheat or what is pastry flour, what is cake flour, like how the protein and how the levels of gluten affect the different desires that we have for baked goods. Like you want, you know, gluten development in normal baking, we're going to get to the, the gluten-free part, um, you know, for doing things like like bread and sourdough um, boules and loaves of sandwich bread versus if you're doing a cake or pie crust, then you don't want the gluten development because it's going to make that pie crust not as tender, not as flaky. And so mm-hmm. I think that we, because we've gotten so spoiled with all-purpose flour for most, you know, just modern modern cooks, like you just grab all-purpose flour, it works for all things, right? I, I understand it. I use all-purpose flour still to the well, I shouldn't say to this day, I do for my family, but not for myself right now. But I think that that has really limited a lot of folks' understanding of what roles things play when you are baking. And so a lot of people will ask me on recipes, well, can I just sub and make this gluten-free? Even though it's not a recipe that I have formulated for gluten-free, I do have some gluten-free recipes and I'll be doing more. And I'm like, well, Yes, in some and no in others. Like sometimes you can take a pre-formulated gluten-free blend and it will work fine. But I found, especially for bread or rolls, those types of things, I have never been able to successfully just sub in a gluten-free blend one for one and had those types of things turn out. So can you first talk to that? Because that's something I feel like I get the most questions about that just in general wanting to just sub in, like, how do I, can I just sub in a, a blend? So can you talk to that a little bit, like when that works and when it doesn't? Absolutely. Yeah. So kind of to your point, it really does matter uh, what type of recipe you're basing it off of compared to regular baking. I find that one-to-one blends, even though I don't use them anymore, <laughs> I find that they work best for things like quick breads, you know, banana bread, muffins, and maybe some cakes. Uh, where you're not really dealing with a short crust, you know, the short protein chains, short protein, sorry, gluten protein chains, like in uh, pastry or things like bread, where you would want a longer stretchy gluten protein chain. So any of those things is where it's the easiest to use a one-to-one flour. 
although it still does depend on what kind of one-to-one flour you're using because they're all made with different types of ingredients. And then there are other sort of techniques that I have found worked when you're trying to make something on, on either extreme ends of the spectrum. For example, when you're doing something that's like a pie crust shortbread where you want that really tender uh, texture, mm-hmm. using a little bit of something like cornstarch. And we're talking about like, like taste and that sort of thing rather than on the health side. I think like baking gluten-free on the pure health side is a bit different than you know just trying to replicate to like satisfy your soul when you've just been diagnosed <laughs> yes. with celiac disease. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, so yeah, so using some, a little bit of something like cornstarch can help to make that thing really tender. And then on the flip side, when it comes to breads, there are two main ingredients that I find really help to give that elasticity that you miss from the gluten. Um, one of them is tapioca starch specifically. There are different types of starch, but using a little bit of tapioca starch, it has the elastic properties. and then. The other thing is xanthan gum, which if you've done any gluten-free baking, it might sound like this weird ingredient, but it's in most gluten-free baked goods. And it's in there because it acts as a gluten replacer. Mm -hmm. Um, And for something, you know, that's like a cake, you would use less of it. But when you're making a bread, you'd want to add a little bit more because it will add a little bit more of that binding power. Yeah, that's really interesting because I have used xanthan. Even when I was doing keto, honestly, that would be a thickener I would use instead of cornstarch because cornstarch does have carbs in it. So this depends on, but uh, you know, what, what your goal is. Right. But yeah, I've used xanthan gum actually as a thickener when I'm making like gravies or sauces when I was doing keto, but that was because of carb count, not because of gluten free. But I, I have found that I actually enjoy working with it and I haven't had any issues with it. So how, so when you're looking at doing like the breads and like you said, where you actually have you want gluten development because of the elasticity, the tapioca, which I've also played with and have found that that is helpful. But I found even with using the xanthan gum that oftentimes, like I feel like I need to add maybe an extra egg and maybe that's because I have my hydration levels a little bit different. So when you're looking at a recipe that's not been already formulated, like obviously the best place to start is with recipes that have already been formulated for gluten-free because (laughs) then you're not having to make all these adaptations. But for people who have like, oh, these favorite recipes or want to understand actually like how the recipes are developed because of the specific ingredients, can you talk a little bit about needing extra binding when you're not using the regular flour? um, And then with the hydration levels, like do you need to add more liquid? Do you use less liquid? Do you just go by, eventually you'll develop, I know being able to look at the batter, just like you do with regular bread baking and looking at your dough and know like this is this is the right consistency as far as moisture level. But did you kind of, have you fell across what you feel like are kind of like some general rules for starting? Yes. So first let's talk about binding and then we'll get into the moisture a bit. Um, and yes, the major thing that I have found that helps is eggs. And I know that it can be hard for some people. Um, there are some people who have egg allergies and who are vegan. And I feel like the recipes need to be formulated a little bit differently when you're working without eggs. But if you are someone who can have eggs, yes, adding an extra egg, even when, even to something that you wouldn't normally put an egg in, definitely does help. And part of that has to do with the protein structure of the egg. Because I'm also a bit of a nerd. <laughs> I read this <laughs> gluten-free food science book and they did tests with gluten-free breads. And they found that gluten-free breads made with eggs, um, the eggs created a very similar 
protein structure um, as what you would find in a regular loaf of gluten bread. So if you are struggling with making gluten-free bread and you can have eggs and you're not currently putting eggs in them, that is a great starting point, um, both for structure and everything like that. And eggs also have an anti-staling effect. So your baked goods won't dry out. as. And that leads me sort of into the moisture thing, because yes, eggs can help with moisture. It can help them from drying out as quickly. And then as far as adding more liquid and that sort of thing, what I actually like to do first is um, I play with adding other high moisture flours in Mm. first. Okay. So for example, if you're someone who does want to bake using a one-to-one flour, um, you don't want to get too much into the nitty gritty of using individual flours, then what I recommend people do is try reducing the all-purpose amount by like maybe a quarter cup or a half a cup and instead using something like almond flour or oat flour something that has a higher moisture content, higher fat content and that sort of thing. And I find that that helps to um, not only add more flavor, but also bring more moisture into the recipe. And then if that doesn't work and it is still dry, then that's usually when I would try adding um, either a little bit more butter, more oil, something like sour cream, depending on what the recipe is or yogurt. Okay. So actually more the fat content in a kind of a liquid form than just like adding extra water. Um, or even milk from what that's my takeaway that I just got from what you said. Is that yeah. that's correct? Yeah, I don't I don't know that I necessarily add more water, maybe for bread recipes. OK, Um, my typically my bread, it's more of a batter consistency okay. than a typical bread dough. So you wouldn't really be able to at least need for it. like a loaf of bread. Yeah. yeah, you wouldn't. Yeah, you wouldn't be able to need it. And also, side note. You do not need to knead your gluten-free breads. Um, my, one of my tips is no need to knead um, because there's no, the whole point of kneading is to like it's create the gluten protein structure. Yes, yeah. yeah. But, but when, there, when there is none, you're actually like knocking all of the gases out of the bread and you're going to make it more dense. Okay. So that was a bit of a tangent, but. I love it. Yeah. Well, but it's so hard because when you have cooked with flour that has gluten and especially bread baking, for so long, a lot of those things that we do until you've went through like what you are, like, it's just so ingrained in us that you like when I, you know, I would probably like, oh, do I need to need this or not? Like, cause it's just habit that you would yeah. do that. So I love that you are sharing that tip. Um, as, <laughs> so I have to ask, this is just for me because not only am I not supposed to have wheat right now, but oat and almond mm-hmm. and cashew and peanut are all off the table for me. So I know I'm, I'm quite restricted right now, but the reason I ask that is, are there any other high moisture? I can do potato, interestingly. So would like a potato starch or a potato flour, what would you recommend as being one of those higher moisture flours or is there one that I could sub in? Yeah, let me just think, is it all nuts? No, that's like, the interesting part. I can do like hazelnut, I can do macadamia nut. I just don't know where to find those flowers. And that's part of it too. Cause like a lot of this, just you go to Costco, I can find coconut and almond flour, but a, when I get more specialty, I'm not even sure where to look for some of the flowers. Right. Do you have any way of grinding your own flowers? I sure do. I have a flower. <laughs> I do. I have a mill. <laughs> yeah. So um, whether you have a mill or I have a Vitamix, I love my Vitamix. <laughs> okay. I have a so blend much. tech. So super similar. Yeah. I, yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
So those are there are certain gluten free flours that you can blend yourself. Something like a rice flour, I don't recommend blending yourself because it it'll be gritty. But something like oat oat flour, um, just to put it out there, you can do that. Almond flour, you can do that. But yeah, any of those nut flours, you could absolutely grind yourself. So depending on the type of recipe, like if you're making a muffin recipe, using something like hazelnut flour would probably be really delicious. Yeah. Um, okay. And so an- another one that I've heard, if you have a nut allergy, I haven't played with it yet, is um, sunflower seed. If you grind sunflower mm. seeds into a flour, it might help to get some of that, the extra protein and fats okay. and all of that in there too. Yes. And I can do sunflower. I can't do sesame, but I can do sunflower. So. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm Yeah. Set. I recommend trying that. Okay. <laughs> Okay. I will definitely, I will definitely uh, start to play with those. So I guess like those were kind of like my main questions, but I know as someone who has vast more experience than me, you probably have things to share that I haven't even thought to ask. So I'm like handing you the mic, take it away. Okay. You know, I think that one of the things that I, I like to talk about, and I feel like I could get a little bit um, on a rant about is that I have found the way that gluten-free baking has existed in the world to be very frustrating as someone starting out. The whole point of me making my courses is that I wanted to really simplify the way of doing it. And to get a bit more specific into that is I feel like right now there are a whole lot of different brand specific flowers mm-hmm. that all work in a different way. There are a lot of cookbooks that ask you to make your own blend of flowers to use for those specific recipes. So I, you know, within two years of being gluten-free, I just had a full cupboard stocked with numerous brands of flowers, plus all the individual flowers uh, so that I can make all these different blends. If I made, if I took the time to make a blend for a recipe and I didn't like the recipe, then that was kind of a waste. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found that process to be like really tiring. And so for my gluten-free recipes and the way that I teach Uh, how to bake gluten-free, I use the individual flours and I tailor it for each kind of recipe. So the combination of flours I use for a biscuit is totally different than that what I use for pizza crust and totally different from what I use for my pie crust, but they all use the same core ingredients. So now I have like, I don't know, maybe six, six to, well, me personally, because I'm a bit of a nerd, like maybe, maybe like 10. I have a lot, but like, you know, if you have three main flowers and three main starches, mm-hmm. you can make basically anything and you don't have to do any pre-mixing or anything like that. And I find you get a better result. And so you're just playing also, yeah. with the ratios of those to the specific recipe, but those are the core base to make all the things. So you don't have to stock like you're saying, like, you know, up to 15 different things, including all these store-bought blends. You could just take these core starches and gluten-free flours. And then based upon what type of the recipe is, you're just adjusting the ratio. Is that? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's exact. That's exactly it. And the other nice thing about doing that is I feel like you get to know how the flours act better than using something that's pre-blended. For example, when I was trying to develop a really solid biscuit recipe, I was playing with the different kinds of starches. And I found that when I was using tapioca starch, it was making them almost stretchy, which is mm. like not what you would not want a from, biscuit. A, yeah. from a biscuit. <laughs> um, yeah, but because I, you know, I wasn't using a store-bought blend that had 
that had preset ingredients, I was like, okay, well, which ingredient is making this stretchy? It's the tapioca starch. And so I swapped the tapioca for cornstarch and then it created the very tender result I was looking for. But if you just use store-bought blends, you, mm -hmm. you're not in control of those sorts of things. You don't, you're not learning about the ingredients in it. And so, yeah, you know, you're going to either have to try to try a different brand or, um, you know, just try to work within that. It's just, there's more, more flexibility in that way of baking, in my opinion. Yeah. What I really, as a homesteader and someone trying to take the practices that I use to gluten-free from regular, like that's why, like I have hard white wheat berries because that's what I grind up if I'm doing fresh ground flour that is obviously not gluten-free for my bread baking because it has the longer protein and it has the gluten, but then I've got spelt and or soft wheat to, to grind up. And I'll usually mix if I want to make cake flour, like I'll do a little bit of spelt with a little bit of corn cornstarch, excuse me, mix in. And then that gives great. But it, so basically it would be taking those principles and then applying them to the gluten-free baking and learning that rather than just buying a cake mix from the store, which is kind of the same thing as buying the gluten-free blends. Granted, I'm sure they have better ingredients than most of your cake mixes from the store, depending on the brand you're buying. But it's kind of those same principles. It's like, let's really understand how these react in recipes because it does give you greater freedom. And usually it's cheaper, I at yeah. least in my experience, uh, to buy these base ingredients in bulk than it is to buy anything where they've done the work for you and pre-blended it up. It's usually more friendly on the, the pocketbook. So if you don't mind sharing, what are, like if you're going to do the three starches and the three flours, that's the base. And then we'll definitely be linking. I want to go check out your course and check all of that out for more in depth on like how you adjust each certain ratio for the different things. But what are like the main that you would recommend people start out with stocking? Yep. Um, so typically the main go-to base for me is rice flour. I tend to have white rice and brown rice flour on hand, but the thing is that they kind of work the same way. So even if you just have one of those, that's fine. I tend to use white rice flour more for things like cookies where I really want like the taste of the butter and the chocolate to shine through. Mm -hmm. And then almond flour, which I know is one of the ones that you're going to be eliminating. Um, so some sort of flour that has a higher fat content. Okay. Typically, typically I would say replace the almond flour with oat flour. Mm -hmm. um, which is also one that you are currently. I, I'm a special for. bird so, right now, but yes, for yeah. most folks, that yeah. would be fine. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then starch wise, uh, tapioca starch, potato starch and corn starch, which you probably already have on hand anyway. So really like okay. really you only need to add maybe four kind of base flowers and for my essentials course, for example, which is, I have a uh, bread, cookies, pie, cake, biscuits, and pizza. Uh -huh. I just use I just use those plus xanthan gum. So, you know, you only have to have those, but you can make the whole range of different types of baked goods just with those ingredients rather than needing to have like, you know, a specific blend for your bread and your pizza and all of those. OK, I love that. So I do have a question for you because this is more my limitation right now with what my my food choices are on the flowers. But yeah. coconut flour. So talk to me about coconut flour and its role, because I haven't heard you mentioned it. And I know a lot of people, when you think of gluten-free flours, like coconut flour is one that's easy to buy at Costco. You know, it's easy to purchase a lot of places, but do you not use it very much? Is there anything that like, just as far as baking wise to be aware of with using it? Or I'm curious because you didn't mention it. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what? I don't use coconut flour. 
Okay. <laughs> um, and the reason why is because it's, it's crazy absorbent. Ah. And so, th- so that can, you need to add more liquid or it could be dry. Mm-hmm. And that's really the main reason I haven't really played with it is just okay. because of that. Like you definitely need to use it with another kind of flower. And, and honestly, it's not one of the cheaper ones, at least for me. Like I haven't seen it in Costco. Mm-hmm. I have seen almond flour in Costco, <laughs> um, but I do tend to buy my flowers in bulk and I haven't seen that one bulk. Okay. Um, yeah. I don't have anything against coconut flour, but yeah, it's just the absorbency of it. Yeah. Well, and that's a really good tip to know. I mean, but I figured there had to be a reason because yeah. <laughs> I'm like, she hasn't mentioned it. I want to know why. Cause I, I like having that, that it's that info part. Like, well, why don't you want to use that? Not to, I wasn't trying to call no. you out. Like you do not like <laughs> coconut flour. Not like that. I was just super curious because it wasn't one that you, uh, that you mentioned. So, well, I, I feel like as I go on this journey, I'm probably going to have a ton more questions. <laughs> It's kind of one of those things like, you know, at first I'm like, okay, this was my first round. Like now I'm going to, you know, get into it and and start playing with it. But I know with anything, like after you've been at something for a while, then you tend to develop a new set of questions or a new set of like trying to figure out it out on another level. So Mm -hmm. um, I'm so grateful that you came on and definitely we will have um, links in the blog post that accompanies this episode so that you guys can check stuff out further. But thank you so much for everything that you shared. Yes, absolutely. And thank you so much for having me on, Melissa. Yeah, it's so, great chatting with you. It's, I had a lot of fun. But for those who do want to check out or the best way, I, know, I think you mentioned your YouTube channel, kind of what's the best place? And if there's any parting thing that you want people to know and where they can connect with you, uh, like the best place to connect with you. Um, yeah, so you can send me an email directly if you have gluten-free baking questions and you want to know if my courses are a good fit for you, uh, it's just Robin at glutenfreebakingcourses.com. My website is glutenfreebakingcourses.com. And yeah, and I also do have a YouTube channel. If you are gluten-free and you're going through that journey and you need some fun, relatable, informational videos, you can check out my YouTube channel, which is also Robin's Gluten-Free Living. Okay, great. I will be checking them out both. (laughs) So (laughs) thank you so much. And um, this was this was really fun. Um, and I look forward to learning more from you. So thank you. Yeah. Have a great day, Melissa. Well, I hope that you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. And we have a special treat. Robin has a 10% off coupon code for Pioneering Today listeners only. And that coupon code is Pioneering Today all one word, no capitalization. And that will take 10% off any of her individual courses or bundles if you want to go and check them out. And I will tell you that I use the coupon code (laughs) and I purchased the courses right before recording this intro and outro after I had talked to Robin. So I am really excited to dive into them myself and be adding more to my gluten-free baking knowledge. So again, to access those links and to get that coupon code, melissaknorris.com forward slash 334. And I will share more of my journey as it evolves, because I know a lot of you, when we were in the Pioneering Today Academy members meeting, there was a lot of questions and requests to share what I'm learning and how I feel and just that whole journey. I think I am a very curious person. I feel like it's 
the wanting to learn and to know more things, I think it's like a prerequisite for wanting to be a homesteader or self-sufficiency. Like we are just lovers of knowledge and gaining that. So as I gain new perspectives and new insights, etc., regarding that journey, I will definitely be sharing them with you here on the podcast. For now, it's blessings in mason jars, and I will be here with you next week with a brand new episode. Thank you.